Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Justin Trudeau's cabinet changes, but everything really remains the same. The Liberals continue to wedge Conservatives on vaccination, and Aaron Gunn speaks out after disqualification from the BC Liberal leadership race. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. It is Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. Thanks for tuning into the program. I spent the last couple of days in Alberta, which I feel I've been saying a lot lately. There, there have been a few things that have pulled me out there. This time I was speaking at another one of the Economic Education Association of Alberta's Freedom Talk conferences. We were talking about healthcare, and I'll have some interviews and coverage from that conference on my Thursday show in just a couple of days' time. Big news today is Justin Trudeau's new cabinet, which is new and exciting and yet not all that different. There have certainly been some changes. People have been shuffled around, a couple of notable absences. But when push comes to shove, this is not an example of a government hitting the reset button in a substantive way. And I'm going to talk about a couple of the changes here. I'm not going to like focus on every single one. Like To be honest, I don't care who the fisheries minister is. But I am going to talk about some of the big changes that are taking place. Because there is, I think... Or let me back up. There should be a recognition from the government that things have not been handled well. This government does not have that humility. Patty Haidu is no longer in health. Bill Blair is no longer in public safety. Those two, if there were no other changes, those two should make Canadians very happy. Patty Haidu, who maligned border closures as racist before maligning people that oppose border closures, who said you are feeding conspiracy theories if you question China's handling of COVID pandemic. Uh, Patty Haidu, who loves just uh, firing off at everyone else for not wearing a mask and is then photographed hanging out in an airport lounge without a mask. She was an unmitigated disastrous health minister and deserves to be gone. She's now been moved to the Indigenous Services portfolio. She's the Minister of Indigenous Services, which is pretty much as insulting to Indigenous Canadians as Justin Trudeau going to Tofino on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is, and a significant role that they've put someone who doesn't particularly handle files all that well in. And then we have Bill Blair, who was responsible for this absolutely failed attempt to manage the border, a failed attempt to manage firearms, He's now been shuffled out. They've split up, actually, the public safety portfolio and the emergency preparedness file. These used to be one, public safety and emergency preparedness. This is for no other reason than to give him a bit of a soft landing. So now Bill Blair is just the emergency preparedness minister, and the public safety minister is Marco Mendicino, who was previously working on immigration. A couple of other changes here. We have Mark Garneau, who is out. He was the most recent global affairs minister, five foreign ministers in six years. This is the Trudeau government's legacy on this. For all that Justin Trudeau loved to say that Canada was back, five foreign ministers in six years. So yeah, this is now the fifth. So we had Christian Freeland for a while, then we had Francois-Philippe Champagne, and then we had Marc Garneau, and now Melanie Jolie. This is how we send the message to the world that Canada's back. We send Melanie Jolie on the foreign stage. Now, having a new foreign affairs minister does not mean you have a new foreign policy. 
Canada has, despite the proclamation that, you know, where it's not like the old days of Stephen Harper, we've not really done anything on the foreign stage. And apart from failing to get a seat on the UN Security Council, then failing to get our pick elected to the head of the OECD, Canada has not reasserted itself on the foreign stage. Not sure if the Trudeau government's going to try to do that with Melanie Jolie or if they're just giving up. But nevertheless, that's where we are. And one amusing takeaway from the cabinet is that Mona Fortier, who was the Minister for Middle Class Prosperity... And you may remember, this is the woman who couldn't actually define what the middle class was when asked and gave this answer about, well, people know when they're in the middle class. The, the, she's moved to another file, but the ministry is gone. There's no more minister for middle class prosperity. So as I pointed out on Twitter, I don't know if that means the middle class is sufficiently prosperous or if the government just realized that this was a make work position that was platitudinal in nature and achieved nothing. My hope is that it's the second, but again, I don't really think there's been any introspection. So you look at this and say, and by the way, the reports are that Mark Arnaud is going to be headed to be an ambassador in France or something, which is what they did to Stéphane Dion. So Europe, <laughs> Europe is now the dumping ground for problematic Canadian ministers. We just like send them somewhere else so we don't need to deal with them. And as we saw with John McCallum, sending problem MPs to become ambassadors, in his case, China, doesn't always work out all that well for Canada. But even though we see some changes, like Harjit Sajjan gone out of defense and replaced by a minister, Anita Anand, another one where Sajjan shouldn't have been in the cabinet at all, how he managed to get international development when here's a guy who oversaw what was increasingly looking like a defense department in which every single leadership member, not actually, but you know, facetiously, was under investigation for some sort of sexual misconduct. And he was the guy at the top, but he still gets to stay in cabinet. So obviously the government is responding to some problems and scandals. The fact that, yeah, Haidu wasn't cutting it at hell. Sajjan couldn't be at defense and Garneau wasn't doing well at foreign affairs and all of that. But at the same time, they're really just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic here. They're not accepting that they've done things wrong. They're not accepting that they need a course correction. In fact, I bet when the throne speech comes back, Justin Trudeau's message is going to be, we've been doing a great job. Let us just keep going. Things are great. We've just, you know, made a little couple of tiny, teeny, teeny little tweaks here. It's it's barely noticeable. They're wee, they're inoffensive. Just, you know, just a little couple little tiny changes, trim around the edges. But the reality is this is a sinking ship. The Trudeau government is not adequately performing in a way that is serving Canadians. And the reality that they've taken these bad ministers out, but aren't even just saying, you know what, you're done. They're just moving them to other files, in some cases significant files, suggest the government is not planning to change anything else. And why would they? Even if Justin Trudeau was re-elected with another minority, the Liberals won. They won. As I said after the election, when a lot of conservative defenders were saying, well, you know, the conservatives kept Justin Trudeau from getting a majority, so they really won. No, a win is a win and a loss is a loss. The conservatives lost, the liberals won. And even if they won with a narrow mandate, they still are doing well. They're in government. That's what you want in an election, to end up in government. And I have no reason to suspect that the NDP and the Bloc Québécois will not continue to just rubber stamp whatever it is the Trudeau government is doing. There will be terms and conditions attached to this, of course, but the Liberals will hand it over. 
They're more likely to find a willing dance partner in the NDP and the Bloc than in the Conservatives. So the Liberals have won. Justin Trudeau has another mandate, and I think this one will probably be a bit more stable than the last. And if you want an example of how the Liberals are not eager to do any sort of course correction, just look at how the vaccine mandate has become the new fight for members of Parliament in the class of 2021 before they've even taken their seats. I talked about this last week. The reality is you have MPs who were duly elected by their constituents irrespective of their vaccination status or perhaps because the constituents knew and it was important to them, whatever the case is, but MPs who are duly elected, if they're not vaccinated, will not be allowed to take their seats when the House of Commons resumes. And this is thanks to a closed-door meeting in the Board of Eternal Economy made up of members from all parties, but of course the Conservatives are outnumbered, in which they adopted a vaccine mandate for MPs. Now this is what the Liberals have decided to make a priority. They're not talking about how can we work together, how can we serve Canadians. They're saying, how can we make sure that we continue to drive wedge after wedge on vaccination choice for conservatives? Because they think that the conservatives are the crazy ones for believing that vaccination is a personal choice. They think that that is not a position compatible with Canadian society right now. And they're moving more and more towards trying to mandate vaccination wherever they can. They can't, you know, drive up with a van to your front door and jab you against your will, but they can put vaccine mandates in more and more places so more and more Canadians are subject to a mandate in some kind. And in this case, it is members of parliament who have to play ball. So the conservative MPs who are unvaccinated, I don't know how many there are. There are a handful of them, but there are more that I think are taking the position I do, which is that get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated, that's your choice, but let's stand against mandating it. And one of them, notably, has been rookie member of parliament, Leslin Lewis. Now, I interviewed Leslin Lewis when she was seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada back in, I think it was March of 2020. And she has been very vocal on Twitter in the last few days, standing up for the idea of choice. Now, I don't know or care whether Leslin Lewis is vaccinated. She is seeking, or she has won her first election. So she's going to be the member of parliament for Haldeman Norfolk. And, and she's been pointing out the reality of this being an oppressive measure that is inherently undemocratic. She says in one tweet here, a philosopher once said that the British serfs were free to leave their lord's feudal land and go to the city to starve. When a choice leaves people with no means of support, then it is an illusion created by those with power. It appears to give options that are really ultimatums. She also took a, another tweet uh, from Stockwell Day, who was pointing out a lot of the unfair criticism to Leslie Lewis, and she said that the media is trying to paint her as a reckless lunatic to lynch her into silence. She's not going to sit at the back of the bus. She is not going to be silenced, and she's continued in recent days to stand up for medical privacy, to stand up against vaccine mandates, and be very vocal in a way that I think conservative members of parliament need to be on this issue. Glenn Motts, another MP, I think we've had him on the show in the past, or I've, I've certainly interviewed him elsewhere. He is an MP in Alberta, good advocate for firearms. He's saying if we want to fight the pandemic, we need to be unified, not divided. And he says he's opposed to coerced vaccinations and feels strongly about that as he feels about using vaccines. So he's not anti-vax, despite how the media and the left would love to characterize him. He supports the right for people to make the decision for themselves, which is so critical 
in this and other areas of public policy. So we have a couple of MPs that are speaking out. And Aaron O'Toole has, I don't know if you've noticed, flip-flopped on this a couple of times in the last few days. At first he was saying, okay, this is wrong. And then he was saying, well, yeah, but we'll just, we'll accept it. But, you know, we'll, we'll shake our finger at the Board of Internal Economy. We don't like it, but yeah, well, what, what can you do? And, you know, look, in a practical sense, maybe he's right about that. But I would like to see the Conservatives making a bigger stink. The reason they aren't, and this is the, the regrettable part about Canada right now, is that they are in the minority. People like you listening, presumably people like me, those of us who believe this is a matter of individual choice, we are in the minority in a country that is increasingly moving away from personal choice and individual liberty and individual responsibility and moving towards a society that welcomes government fiat and government control over individual decisions. And this is why the liberals continue to use vaccination as a wedge, because they know that there are more people on their side than there are on the other. Now, the way you do that is by impressing upon people the point of individual choice and helping people understand that the right to choose is separate and distinct from the substance or moral worth of what a particular choice is. In the same way that support for free speech is detached from what a particular expression of free speech is. And I do a lot of advocacy on free speech. I do public speaking on it. I talk about it on the show. And that's one of the hardest hurdles to overcome. People that are so focused on the substance of speech, they don't think of the bigger picture. So you say, I support free speech. And they say, but what if someone says X? I say, I don't care. I don't care what it is. I don't have to find a joke funny to defend someone's right to say it. I don't have to find an expression of speech tasteful to support its status as free speech. And these are going to be, again, very related issues. That event in Alberta, which I spoke, I was talking about how government's universal monopoly on healthcare is a conduit for government to control individual decisions. Because as we've seen in the pandemic, they get to make uh, hospital capacity the trump card for how people live their lives because they can say, well, it's, you have your own choice, but we've got to protect the healthcare system. But a lot of these things are interconnected. A society and a culture that doesn't value freedom is not that far removed from one that doesn't value freedom of speech. And we know that the liberals are, as one of their first orders of business, it's going to be, mark my words, in the first hundred days. I don't make predictions. This is a prediction. In the first hundred days, Justin Trudeau's government is going to reintroduce its ban on internet hate speech, on so-called internet hate speech. In the last parliament, this was Bill 36. It will presumably have a new number when it comes back. But this is going to be one of the very first things the liberals do to try to reopen regulation of online speech under the Canadian Human Rights Act. This isn't Bill C-10. That's coming back too. That's a bit different. That's also something to be concerned about and something we'll be watching. But this is specifically the Liberals' hate speech bill. And I noticed the Conservatives yesterday, I, I sign up for on all the mailing lists for all the parties. Uh, my inbox makes me want to pull my hair out, but it's important to know what they're saying as they go about this. The Conservatives sent out a fundraising email, fundraising, trying to ask Canadians for money on the back of this Liberal ban to regulate speech. 
So what they said here is that Justin Trudeau won't bring back Parliament, but he's already planning to introduce a bill that will censor the internet and regulate your free speech. Even liberal ministers are acknowledging that this new censorship bill is more extreme and far-reaching than their last attempt with Bill C-10. That was a line from uh, Stephen Gilbo. In a society that values freedom of speech and expression, we can't afford to leave the door open for a massive abuse of power on the rights of Canadians. And they're saying that the plan to censor the internet and restrict your free speech is in full swing, so conservatives must come together to stand up for free speech. I look at that and go, rah, rah, that's all well and good. But I note that before the election, the conservatives were silent absolutely silent on C-36. Aaron O'Toole, and believe me, I looked, did not say a word about it. Did not say a single word until I asked about it during the campaign. The conservatives didn't post any messaging on it, didn't put out any press release. The only comment was from one shadow minister, a critic who uh, said something, but even then it wasn't a proactive statement. It was in response to a media inquiry. So, I mean, Ezra Levant retweeted the tweet that I put out about that with a screenshot and said, yeah, yeah, they're just doing it for money. It's not really real. And to be honest, I, I think it's a bit of that. I also think it's a bit of now that the election's over, conservatives start feeling they could be conservative again. This was the challenge with Andrew Scheer in 2019. And to be fair, Andrew Scheer admitted that. I did an interview with him in August of last year when he was on his way out. And he said in retrospect, you know, he wished he had just been more himself. Because he is a conservative. He does believe in these things. But when a conservative is eyeing the finish line, they get all of these activists that jump on that say the road to victory is to move more and more to the left. And we're going to see Aaron O'Toole probably start talking about these red meat issues now because he's not going after centrist Canadians. He's instead trying to cling to his own leadership. And look, I mean, I, I take the position that better late than never. I want the conservatives to fight this because the conservatives managed to, whatever you think of them, they managed to sufficiently raise alarm bells about C-10 that the Liberals didn't have a mandate to put forward Bill C-10 in the last session of Parliament. The Liberals were prepared to just like steamroll that one right ahead. And Michael Geist, a, a fantastic advocate at the University of Ottawa, had started to raise, uh, raise questions about it and, and point out why it was so dangerous. Then the Conservatives picked it up and, and decided to make that a hill to die on, which, I, again, I think was important. But in doing so, the Conservatives managed to slow it down enough that it didn't really have a road forward in the last parliament. They better be prepared to do that, not just with whatever C-10's successor is, but also with C-36's successor. Because these are things, as I've said, that need to be the hill to die on for conservatives and anyone in Canada who cares about freedom. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Let's talk about British Columbia politics for a couple of moments here. Aaron Gunn, who has been on the show in the past, was seeking for just a couple of weeks the leadership of the BC Liberals. Now, this is where I have to put the obligatory disclaimer. The BC Liberals are, for the most part, for the most part, and not exclusively, the choice party for right-of-center British Columbians. Now, there is a BC Conservative Party, but it doesn't really have much of an operation to speak of. It doesn't have electoral success. The BC Liberals, that is the party for conservative British Columbians generally. 
And that is a big source of the confusion. And in fact, it was one of the things that Aaron Gunn wanted to rectify. He thought the BC Liberals needed a new name. He thought there was brand confusion there. And he thought the party needed to establish itself on firm footing as a conservative party for British Columbians as an alternative to the NDP, which is currently in government in BC. And Aaron Gunn was going to be a disruptor, clearly. He was coming not from the political class, but from his role as a commentator, as an activist. He had a huge following, which is why when he started saying he was mauling a leadership bid earlier this year, we sat down with him and spent, I think it was like, you know, 20, 25 minutes or so talking about a range of things. You should go and check out that interview. So a couple of weeks ago, Aaron Gunn launches his campaign, a lot of excitement, a couple of his colleagues saying, oh, this guy's too controversial. He shouldn't be allowed to run. But nevertheless, He's going, selling memberships, getting ready for it. Well, last week, a cabal of individuals behind closed doors decided that he does not have the right to seek the leadership of his party. And they decided that he would be banned from running as a leadership candidate. And here's what they say. To approve Mr. Gunn's candidacy would be inconsistent with the BC Liberal Party's commitment to reconciliation, diversity, and acceptance of all British Columbians. So it would not be sufficiently committed to reconciliation, diversity, or acceptance to have him in there. Now, again, there's no evidence given as to what he said or done that is insufficiently committed to reconciliation, acceptance, and diversity, but that's the cudgel they're using to keep Aaron Gunn out of the race. And whether you like him or not, whether you would have voted for him or not, whether you are in British Columbia or not, Surely these things can underscore the point that it should be members in parties who make these decisions, not backroom groups of individuals, like happened in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race with Jim Carahalios, to give a recent example, like happens in nomination meetings that we take aim at all the time. And I say I was a beneficiary once of an appointment that took place behind closed doors. When I ran in Ontario in 2018 for the Ontario PCs, I was seeking the nomination. There was someone, there were actually two other candidates that were seeking the nomination. One of them had been doing it for quite a while. And then the party decided just a few weeks out from the election, they were going to scrap the nomination race and appoint me. Now this was something, so pe people may say, well, who are you to talk about appointments? It's, that's the reason. It's unfair to people who are in the race, even if they're the appointed ones, it's unfair because it is the members who are supposed to be the ones to make these decisions. It's the members in parties who get to decide their leadership. So let's talk about this and what it means and also what comes next. Aaron Gunn joins me on the line now. Aaron, it is good to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Aaron, it's good to talk to you. Tell me, first off, since you've been disqualified, how's the response been from people, either your supporters or just in general? I've been completely overwhelmed by the response. You have uh, hundreds of people tearing up their memberships, calling in to get, get refunded. Uh, you have up to and including former MLAs of the party who have done that and uh, people saying this is kind of the last straw. Uh, there's a lot of people that were already frustrated with the BC Liberals after the last election. I think there were a lot who were ready to walk away from the party and, and saw this leadership race as uh, an opportunity to give it one more chance. And uh, now they're just throwing their hands up in the air and, and walking away. And it's it's hard to obviously blame them when you have uh, this kind of a situation where they, they use fabricated uh, reasons and narratives and, and basically go along with exactly what the NDP was saying to try to... Try to uh, allow their preferred candidate to, to win the race. 
Yeah, let's talk about those fabricated reasons. The release that the BC Liberals put out on the weekend when they disqualified you was that they felt your candidacy would, quote, be inconsistent with the BC Liberal Party's commitment to reconciliation, diversity, and acceptance of all British Columbians. So setting aside for a moment that it's the members that get to decide whether your views are consistent or inconsistent with those of the party, what was the evidence that they were holding up that you were not sufficiently committed to reconciliation, diversity, and acceptance? Well, first of all, let me say that this seven-person unelected board that made this decision, none of the people on it were Indigenous. And in fact, the main Indigenous representative of the party uh, is one of the candidates who's actually running in the race, Ellis Ross. And he publicly stated, both before and after this decision, that I should be allowed to run and that none of these kind of accusations were true or, or based in reality. They showed me, I, I can actually tell you what the, the four tweets they highlighted going through my, my years and thousands of posts on social media. Um, one was, was a complete nothing burger. And the other three uh, were all derivative of each other, where I basically pushed back against the notion that Canada was a genocidal state that had committed genocide in an attempt to exterminate Indigenous people. That was, that's all, that's literally the only thing. You think that there'd be some, uh, you know, super nefarious or politically incorrect uh, thing that I had said, but it literally was just saying Canada did not commit genocide. We did not uh, do something on par with the Holocaust or what happened in Rwanda and that we shouldn't be throwing that word around uh, willy-nilly and, um, and, you know, slandering our own country. So uh, that's what it was all about. That's the excuse they decided to, to, to go with. But look, I think it's clear they made up their mind before I entered the race that they were going to reject my candidacy. I think as we signed up hundreds and thousands of new people, they became very determined and panicked to stop the candidacy. And this is the, the, this is the rationale they thought would be most politically palatable to the, to the mainstream media. So you've been active on social media. You've done a lot of commentary. You've engaged in vigorous debate. You've made videos, documentaries, and all that they found that they felt was disqualifying for you to be the leader of the BC Liberals or a contender for the leader was believing that Canada is not a genocidal nation. That, that was your, that's your controversial, that's their, that's their silver bullet to end your political campaign. Yeah, that's exactly. I, I've been referring to, to different people as it's, uh, you know, the worst attempted kind of character assassination that I've ever seen in Canadian politics. I mean, this is not a... Uh, the, the, the fact that despite Canada's many mistakes in its past as every country and the fact that we uh, lived in a much different world back in the 19th century, uh, the, the, the accusation that we actually committed genocide, that we attempted to exterminate, in essence, Indigenous people, is not a view that is widely held by Canadians, uh, certainly not by party members or conservatives, and nor by most historians. So it's a... It's a uh, it's um, it's bizarre. It shows how desperate they were, uh, I think. And I think they're disappointed that they couldn't find some kind of smoking gun. Uh, but this just shows that, that they're shameless. They don't, they don't care that they didn't find anything. They'd manufacture a reason. I know that the, the danger here is that you may or may not have won. No one knows. You would have worked hard, of, of course, and put together a good campaign. But you've been denied the opportunity to see 
if you could even win. And I have to ask what you think, and you may not know one way or another, but what you think was the motivating factor? Do you think it was that these people in that room thought that you might actually win and they didn't want that? Or do you think they were inherently resistant to what you were trying to do and, and they don't want to reconcile with the fact that perhaps the BC Liberal Party's future is in appealing more to being a, a traditional conservative party? So I think there were two things, Andrew. I think the first is that they knew that we were going to win. Uh, they saw the memberships rolling in. We had basically been on the campaign trail for two weeks. We were outselling any of the other campaigns. So I think it may have been a different decision if they thought, you know, we'll we'll let this guy into the race and he's not, he's not going to win anyways. So uh, there's no need in, in stirring up all this controversy and dealing with the blowback. So I think the first thing is that they thought that we were going to win. Um, uh, and they knew that this was their only move left. And, uh, you know, these party insiders need to protect their little enclaves of power they've carved out for themselves. I do think there was a second reason, um, and that's because people within the party and the party elites, despite what they say publicly, didn't want to have a real debate and discussion about policy and about some of the past policy decisions of this party, whether that's the carbon tax whether that's money laundering and how it's contributed to the rise in housing prices, or whether that is the opioid epidemic that got, uh, although it keeps getting worse under the NDP, uh, it really escalated while the BC Liberals were still in power and some of their failed uh, policies on that front. So I think it's a combination of they didn't want to have these difficult conversations and the fact that they thought that, that we were going to win or we have a real uh, uh, a chance of winning. You've got a, a number of options ahead of you. You can just, you know, exit politics altogether and go back to doing what you were doing. You could uh, fight this through some, you know, perhaps internal or external means. You could join another party, run as an independent. I, I know that it's still very early days, but, but what are you planning in the future? Well, in the days ahead, we're definitely going to have an announcement. There's a couple things that we're working through uh, with regard to my future plans and how we can still bring common sense back to British Columbia and back to Canada. Uh, but I will tell you this, if you think this is uh, the end of our fight or the end of the road, uh, you couldn't be more wrong. This is this fight is really just beginning. Uh, all options are on the table. We're looking at recall campaigns. We're talking about the potential of forming new parties or reviving the B.C. Conservatives. Um, and I also haven't taken certain legal options off the off the table as well, given some of the, the lies and misrepresentations that have been made uh, in public statements. So so we'll see, Andrew. But. Um, it's going to be, uh, I'm sure, an interesting announcement in, in the days and weeks ahead. All right. Well, we'll make sure to keep an eye out for that. Aaron Gunn, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. That was Aaron Gunn, disqualified BC Liberals leadership candidate. We'll keep an eye out for that announcement. I was hoping I could get it out of him, but uh, sadly he was uh, keeping his cards close to his chest there. But uh, we will certainly follow his campaign or whatever becomes in the next few days and weeks here. That does it for me for today. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the program. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.